Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Devin is an incredibly thoughtful and vision-driven leader. I've worked directly with Devin since By Me was a small team to nearly 9x team growth in the past three years. I would highly recommend Devin, especially in the areas of scalability and leadership. That's just one of the many recommendations on Devin Hughes' profile. Devin, you're very welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Looking at your... Uh, well, I'm not even going to say limited to LinkedIn, but looking at your social channels, I can see we've one one thing. I'm sure we have more than one thing in common, but we're both Meath men. You're originally from Navin. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you really have done your homework. Uh, one thing. Yeah. W- one of the things I said in one of your interviews, and I I've played it again and again and again. I can't quite hear whether you say you would or wouldn't recommend an all Irish school, and I'm curious to know what's your answer for either of those. I wouldn't. I would not wouldn't. recommend, no. Okay, I, I went to an all-English-speaking uh, uh, mixed school, so I've not experienced Irish school. I'm assuming you have. I have, yeah. I was in an all-Irish primary school. Um, okay. I was in two all-Irish primary schools, actually. Um, I moved from Dunshockland to Navan, and I was in Skullnariha and in, in Dunshockland and Skullnaina in, in Navan. Um, wow. We're, we're all, all Irish, Welga-speaking. Um, and I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, it certainly it didn't. It did not help me. Um, particularly when I moved, made the transition from primary to secondary, um, and I started learning things like history and maths in English for the first time. There was a, a whole mess of words that I had never, never seen or heard before, um, and it definitely took me my first first year of of secondary school to try and catch up a little bit. I was definitely out of the loop, and it was like it, feeling. That's interesting because when I uh, I went to a uh, school nearby, a toast, not Dunshockland, but I'm familiar with Dunshockland. And the some of the pupils that joined our school in secondary school were from Irish-speaking schools. And I was always jealous of them in Irish class because they'd never have to study. And I hated studying. And they'd always get A's. And in one particular Irish class, the teacher asked us to say something. And I couldn't, I didn't know how to say it. And I thought whatever I was saying was the answer. But what I stood up and said in class was I'm confident and I love myself and I thought it was something completely different so ever since then I've just completely stayed away from Irish um one other thing I noticed on I believe it was your Instagram page is that you like to fish so I'm curious to know what's something that you like to do as a hobby or pastime that not a lot of people might know about you well I think fishing is is one that that has surprised a lot of people um and it's so, to be honest, that's a, that's a hobby that I've really only reconnected with in the last probably two two years or so. I used to fish mm-hmm. a lot when I was younger. My mum would you would take me out fishing and when, when I was younger. Um, and it was something that I, I kind of lost touch with, lost contact with. And to be honest, the business building by me really became quite an obsession um, over the last you know half a decade plus. And, and I probably, that probably became more of my hobby than anything else. And you know, two years ago, I decided that I needed to start actually, you know, having in- outside interests. I was becoming very boring. <laughs> and I needed to have some outside interests outside outside the business. So uh, fishing was something that I've connected with. Um, and and that's that's something that I, that I absolutely do. I'm trying to think of any other hobbies that I that I have to date that, you know. Well, you've got a newborn child. You've got a newborn kid. 
I do have a nearly five it's months. Not, it's not a hobby, but it's almost a full-time job in itself from what yeah, I hear. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've I've also a terrific wife who, uh, who's, who I'm, I'm raising him with, but uh, yeah, that's a whole new journey really. Um, and that also takes time and, and dedication, but actually what I really like about that is, um, you know, becoming a dad for the first time, it gave me this new channel that I could be equally as ambitious with as I am my business. Um, I could be you know, equally ambitious to, to want to be the best dad that I can be. So, um, and what's interesting about that is there's less external factors at play there, you know, mm. uh, the decisions that I make uh, that will dictate, you know, how good a parent I am or I'm not. Um, whereas building a business is much, much different because, you know, that, that little baby is exposed to the elements from the get-go. Um, and, you, you know, you're, you're not the one necessarily, you know, controlling the environment. I, I'm, I'm, I do want to get into the business side of things. I'm not yet a father myself, but I'm curious to know because from listening to other entrepreneurs who put in their heart and soul into their business, they before they become a fathers, I've listened to the likes of Scooter Braun and high-performing athletes say that before they become a father, their whole life is dedicated to this one thing that they couldn't imagine finding the time to to raise their their child. How how have you managed to juggle? both and has that given you uh, any advantages in life since your son's come into the world yeah it's a good question um yeah i certainly would have been i would have been uh somewhat trepidatious uh you know in the in the build up to dorian arriving um given how many hours i put in the business and how much work you know building a, a company starts particularly one that's that's still quite early stage like by me um i think i've had one fortunate instance whereby I'm uh, I'm working from home and have been for nearly a year and a half now um you know I think a lot of dads miss out on that those 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 early early those early times and I was talking about it with my wife recently is that if this was normal par for the course world and lifestyle you know I'd be leaving the house at maybe eight o'clock in the morning he wakes up at about seven I'd get maybe 15, 20 minutes with him in between getting ready. Um, and then I'd be gone for the full day. I'd get home at half six. He goes to bed at seven. So I might get another 15 minutes with him um, before then. So I'd, I'd see my kid for roughly a half an hour to 45 minutes a day, um, you know, Monday to Friday. And then I'd have my Saturdays and Sundays with him. So uh, whereas now, like I see my son every 45 minutes, every 30, yeah, yeah. In, in between meetings, I get 10 minutes with him. Um, you know, and, and even I was late coming onto this call, for example, because I spent the last 25 or well, the last half an hour on a conference call in his room, feeding him while he was having a nap. So I was on a call with our operations team going through, going through our, our weekly reports um, contributing, participating in the meeting, but with a baby strapped to my chest uh, and, and a bottle in his mouth. So, you know, I think being able to multitask, I suppose, is one aspect of it. Um, but I've actually found the transition quite quite seamless, and like I said, I've, I've had an incredible wife and partner, um, who's who, who I'm who I'm doing this with. So I've been able to to really kind of lean into it, um, in many ways that I think a lot of dads perhaps in the past have not had the luxury or opportunity to do it. So I think you know the world has changed, and so has parenting. Amazing, and kudos to your incredible wife as well. Um, looking at by me, I could give my own description. I'm sure you could give your own description. But how would your parents describe what you do for a living? that's <laughs> uh, a good question how would my parents describe what i do for a living um god that's a good question i mean i think they'd probably say he works bloody hard um <laughs> and, and what 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 i actually do um i'm you know i'm not so sure um i run a technology company it's probably what they would say 
you know, my parents saw the beginnings of by me, you know, up close and personal. Um, because I was the, I was the only, I was the first shopper, you know? So when we started the business in the first two years, I did about 1,800 grocery orders for all of our earliest customers. And there was no one else to do orders um, in the, in the first, in the first, in the first, you know, few, few, first six months or so. And if an order came in at any time between nine and 10, Monday to Sunday, um, I would drop whatever I was doing. I could be at a restaurant with family. I could be in the cinema with Lies and my wife. And, and if an order came in, I would just leave. I go and do the order um, because there was no one else to do it. And if I didn't do it, then I wouldn't produce that result. I wouldn't get that KPI. That customer wouldn't, wouldn't ever try us again. So, you know, there was all sorts of implications, but I'd say that that's what my parents would have seen the most because they would have seen me physically going to store, doing groceries and then coming back to the house exhausted uh, having having spent the day doing 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 uh, that 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 work, and um, I think now the work that I've done has probably changed quite significantly. And, and what my parents would see on a daily basis would probably be more what's in the press, and um, you know, speaking to the industry, um, and and talking about what's happening uh, at a at a at a more strategic level for the market. Um, they wouldn't necessarily see my day to day. They know I I deal with investors and they know I I have a team, and that's that's probably about it. Interesting. You've got a lot going on. Uh, you've, you've, as I mentioned, you've got a newborn. Uh, you've got a business that is growing quite rapidly. Anyone that just has to Google your name, and a lot of positive stuff, things come up, but you can see how rapid the, the business is that you're going. So I'm curious to know, what's a recent challenge you've had to overcome and how did you tackle it? Not just how did you tackle it, how did you identify that it was an issue? Because I've heard in a couple of your interviews, you mentioned that you find the solution and you work backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is such a unique business. I mean, it's it's a real time business. Like we are a real time operational business. Like we're solving problems within day. So same day grocery is where the vast majority of our volume uh, happens. So customers place orders, and then our system and, and 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 organization is essentially optimizing and solving for that problem in real time. And the vast bulk of that work is automated. So we've built in, like at the very start, as I said, I was doing the grocery deliveries. We had no automation and, and, and an order would just come in through an Excel spreadsheet and I would get it and I would go and do orders. Now we have a fully built algorithm that processes all the real world variables of, of the physical grocery retail environment. So how many customers are on the platform at any given time? How many items are in their basket? What's their GPS coordinates? How many shoppers, available personal shoppers do we have around the city? And where are they predicted to be throughout the day? And then we're doing all this fast math to produce delivery slots for customers to be able to book and, and facilitate orders. Um, in terms of the challenges that I would be facing, you know, and that's the tri- real the real difference in role for me is that you know in the last five years I've gone from solving the problems of today and not really not stressing too much about the future because when you start a business, you know, you, at best you might have three to six months worth of runway, um, and the business would be could be dead at any time. You don't have the luxury of thinking about what the future is. You have to solve the problems of today. And, and back then, I was trying to figure out how do I get these eggs from the, you know point A to point B in this time frame without breaking them. That was the problems. And um, fast forward five years, yeah, you know, we're now a team of fifty-six people uh, across three offices in Dublin, wow. UK, Ar- Armenia, and Yerevan. We're half Armenian company. My co-founder is Armenian. Um, we have over 430 monthly active personal shoppers doing deliveries. Uh, we handle thousands of deliveries, uh, tens of thousands on a monthly basis. Um, and, and we have over 200,000 registered users. Um, so for me, the problems that I would be handling as an individual contributor within the business is primarily much longer form problems. 
So things like you know strategic retailer engagements, working with our retail partners, what problems are they trying to deal with and how can we help them solve that through great technology and great product development? Um, you know, organizational management, that, like my biggest challenge, I would say in the last 12, 12 to 14 months has been, how do, I, how, do I, how do I manage such a rapidly growing organization? We went from 12 employees to 56 in little over a year. You know, how do I put in a, a management layer? How do I put an organizational structure in place, a reporting structure, measurement? You know, all these things that I'd never done before. You know, this is my first venture back business. Um, it's my fifth business. Um, I've had four spectacular failures um, that got me into, the, into this mess. Um, you learned a lot from them. Would consider them all failures. No, I, I failures in the purely in the financial sense, but yeah, and um, not in the sense that uh, I never walked away from a venture empty-handed. That's for sure. Um, but this is my certainly my first venture at scale. Um, now I've been very lucky. I have some of the most talented people uh, that have joined me on this journey, and um, so I have a huge amount of help. But yeah, how to how to how to grow the org, how to build the structure and the strategy out at a, when you have a, a much larger team. That's certainly been a, a big learning curve for me. It's your baby at the very beginning. You referenced not cracking the eggs while delivering. Now that you've grown to 56 people in three different countries, was it difficult to hand off responsibility to different people to take care of different areas? Or did you enjoy seeing them thrive in, in those areas, knowing that you wanted to slot yourself into where you could be of best value? Great question. Uh, and the answer is no, I had zero problem. Um, handing over by me to to the various members of the team. I, and again, I think that comes down to the fact that this is my fifth business. I'm very, I'm quite unemotional when it comes to buy me. I, I refer to it as a baby because it's uh, startups are incredibly fragile and vulnerable. And mm. um, I don't necessarily attach the same emotionality to the business um, in, as I would have perhaps some of my earliest ventures, which I would have, you know, just tried to keep going at all costs. Um, you know, I've gotten much more comfortable with the idea that if something is not working um, I can put a bullet in it very quickly and move on. And um, because that like, that's just, that's, that's what a business is. It's, it's functional. Sounds um, to me like you separate your identity from your role. Yeah. Well, I struggled with that very, very badly in the early years. Um, you know, I, I felt that my success as a person was tied directly to the business that I was, I was operating or starting. And to the point where my first business, I actually kept, a, I kept open. It was a zombie business. It wasn't trading. But I was paying the, the accountants to do the the the, the returns, the annual accounts, and um, purely because I didn't want my name to be associated with a, a liquidated business on the CRO. Like psychologically, I just didn't want people to be able to search my name and see that I had a failed business against it. Um, it was totally irrational. And when I finally let that business die and closed it, I got this massive euphoric feeling uh, that you know this weight been lifted off my shoulders. No one gives a fuck. You know, your failure, oh. yours, no one cares. Um, and that, that for me was, was a big, big threshold, big learning curve for me to come through, you know, getting to buy me now, like, you know, our first, our first hire, uh, employee number one was uh, a guy called Kevin Hughes, no relation. Um, and he was our, our first, first product lead, you know, and I hired Kevin to be our, you know, our, he's today our chief product officer at the time. He was our first product manager. And, and very quickly, I, I put him in as our, as our head of product, but, you know, he essentially came in and just totally ripped apart the whole platform. Um, and and reimagined it, you know, um, to 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 every extent. I mean, we even went through a big rebranding. His he's a very talented. Uh, his wife is a very talented product designer, um, and she she actually redid the entire Buy Me brand as well. Um, our color coding, our logos, everything changed. Um, and so for me, I've never been very sensitive to that. That's the reason I'm hiring these people. I want them to come in. I want them to have their yeah, yeah. 
and I want that I want to see them evolve the business um, in in their own way. And because a, a big part of that is that if you if you sit over people and only only do it your way, no one will ever have an, an attachment to the business. They won't be on the journey with you. They'll be they'll be just taking instructions. You want people to feel that real ownership, and you need to step back and let them let them let them make the impact. Love it. You you mentioned that that's not so, that's something that you've worked on over the years. And having listened to one of the other podcasts you did, you referenced a friend of yours who was a guest of mine, Gareth, where you said, I don't know if you did, but you thought about unfollowing or blocking him to stop seeing his success when I think it was Crust Bakery he was having success with. What would you say to anyone out there at the moment? who I have a, a quote that I look at every morning, comparison is a thief of joy. What would you say to those that um, are constantly comparing themselves to other others and they struggle with that, even when they're close friends, now that you can speak to it from a position of five, six down, years down the line? Yeah. Um, this is a really, uh, I think this is a very relatable point, Ray, and I think every single one of us has felt the, the sting of jealousy or contempt um, for for and begrudgery of seeing other people's success. And Irish people, particularly, we have a unfortunately we have a culture of begrudgery, and it's tied to you know to a lot to our to our history as a as a country and 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 uh, a lot of the subjugation that our country experienced in that in its essence. Um, reality is is that your own insecurity is your primary reason for hate. Um, and you know you see it in the comments section of any social media platform. Um, it's 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 incredibly clear that you know the the loudest people are the people who feel the most insecure about what they're doing in their own lives. Um, and at that, for me, you know, you referenced a quite a, a pivotal a pivotal time for me. Um, you know, I I'd, I'd come off the back of three failed businesses. I had taken a, a break, a sabbatical, as I called it, um, from from startups because I needed to. I needed to recover mentally, emotionally, and spiritually from from coming out. You know, three three failures in a row is quite tough. You know, and I was I was waiting tables and serving burgers and chips in the Hard Rock Cafe to pay my bills. Um, and I got went off and decided to get a real job. And I was taking a break. Um, but in reality, I was burnt out. Um, and I, you know, and and I had spent my you know previous years straight out of college building, trying to build businesses with Garrett. Um, and you know, when we went our separate ways, um we did so because we were sick of each other to a certain extent, you know, not that we didn't appreciate or like each other, but we were living in each other's ears. We were both strong personalities. We were both, you know, um, I would say both CEOs, you know, uh, in terms of our demeanor and, 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 and ambitions. And that doesn't necessarily blend well uh, when you're trying to build a cohesive team, but you know, we, we went our separate ways. Garrett went straight into his next venture, which was cross bakery. And I decided to take a break from startups because I wanted to go and see, what was I not getting right? You know, I wanted to see what, a, what an established business looked like and see if I could learn uh, something different that I could take into, into a future venture. I never knew, I never, I didn't know at that time whether I would ever go back to startups. Yeah. In that time, sorry, and just maybe to close that thought, but in that time I had Garrett constantly poking me, you know, saying, <laughs> when, are you, when are you going to come back and start, start a business? I, he would ring me and say this to me. And then I would go onto my Facebook feed and I'd see the latest you know, Irish Times article about Garrett launching the first, you know, digital bakery in the world and, you know, having the tea shop come in to shake his hand and tell him how great he was. And, you know, for me, sitting in my office, doing my nine to five, working for somebody else, not really doing what I was, you know, excited or wanted to be doing. And um, I found myself going down um, into a into a not so not so great place. 
And I did want to, I did get to a point where I wanted to mute Garrett. I wanted to take his, 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 I didn't want to delete him as a friend, but I, I just mm. didn't want to see him, you know, um, so much. I didn't want to, I didn't want to see his success because it was making me feel bad about myself. Um, and when I, when I recognized that feeling, um, it was quite, it was, I remember because it was quite a visceral moment where I was like, wow, I, I'm actually not happy for my friend. I, I, I don't want to see like that when you really just frame it like that, you know, whether it's a stranger, I'm just not happy for someone else. Um, and that to me felt like that probably wasn't that if I wanted to go down that road and that path, it probably wasn't going to bring me to the place that I wanted to be in the long run. And so what I started doing was just liking and sharing um, whether I wanted to or not, I would like and share. And my thesis here was that it was almost, it was a, a, an approach. Of, I don't know if you've ever heard the term neural plasticity, um, which is everything that we do, our entire personality and, and habits are all built on neural pathways. And the more you repeat an activity over and over again, you create neural pathways and then you have basically an automatic firing of the neurons in your brain, which is why it becomes easier to do things um, after you practice. It's neural. So your brain is, has plasticity to it. You can carve out, break habits, carve new tasks, new skills by just driving these pathways. So for me, the liking and the sharing was me forcing a neural pathway yeah. um, over and over again. And I would do this on a daily and weekly basis. Garrett shares a lot. And I'd have no, no shortage of content to, to like and share. But what happened after, you know, three or four months or so, maybe less, um, is I actually started to feel like I was sharing in a success. And I started to become really proud of him. Um, and I started to be, you know, um, uh, inspired by what he was doing. Um, and once, once I overcame that, that, that begrudgery, um, all of a sudden, just a whole new, whole new world up, opened up and a whole new feeling within myself. Um, and I was, and myself and Garrett have been, you know, we've been building each other up and, and pushing each other on for, for the best part of a, a little over a decade now. Um, and he's a huge part of the reason why I've made it to where I am today. Just to pause on that for a moment, Devin, that's, that's a, a small, what some might think is an easy task to do, but that's incredible. Hats off to you for doing that. That's, that is incredible. And, uh, uh, and I say that because I know I've struggled with, things that like begrudgery and jealousy and uh, I found it difficult to overcome and it's an ongoing working thing, but that's incredible. Hats off to you, mate. And, and um, just being honest with you, I've not, I've not cracked it. Like I still feel mm. those feelings. Um, I, I don't feel these, those feelings towards Garrett anymore. And I haven't since that time, but I, I still get that feeling when I'm looking at other peers, other, other people competing in my sector, I still get those twinges and those feelings of, of jealousy and, and resentment. And it's something you have to constantly be tweaking within yourself. You're, ne you're never going to eradicate that. It's part of the human condition. Yeah. Well, like last night I was at home and I get them to work as well, but uh, my, my brother came home and a, a friend of his, his relative of his friend had bought a house in, a, in America for 9 million. And he said, hey, Reen, look at this house. And the first thing in my head was like, bastards, how they get a house? Jesus, they're so lucky with that. Not that's really cool. They've got a house. Yeah. And I know I clocked myself saying it and I didn't say anything to him. And I was like, Oh, that's really nice. And I sent them congrats and everything. But initially I was straight to it. Keeping on the Gareth thing as an example, I've read that you've had seven co-founders in a decade. And to me, when I've been, I, I've had one business with a co-founder who I brought in with the, uh, agreement that I would exit at 18 months. So it was more so you come in and I can't run away straight away because the clients would leave, but it's a slow transition. You start to buy me out. I've never had it where I founded something with someone. Um, that 
self-admittedly would probably terrify me that if I was to find something with a friend or someone who I know that I would fall out with them because I'd either put in more work or they put in more work. And there's these fears in my head that I, that I've, that I've never even looked into how, cause one of the things I heard you say is you had a thing called pay me as kind of what I imagine a tester. How did you, how do you work with co-founders? Cause the idea of that terrifies me. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, look, anything that comes with humans is messy. All right. So, and, and, and the beginnings of a business is just so messy um, because of all the questions that you asked, how hard do they work? How hard do they work? There's so many intangibles. How much value is my experience bringing versus your experience? You know, you can't measure these things. Um, and if you can't measure it, you can't manage it and you can't quantify it. So that's, that's a, that's a real problem in the early stages. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer. And, and, and I think one of the, one of the benefits that I, again, coming into buy me, I had was that I, I had started, you know, four businesses with, with, with a multitude of different personalities and people. And what I would say is having had seven co-founders in 10 years is that I've learned far more about myself during that time. You know, how do I engage? How do I work with others? And how, how, how well can I play with others? Because that's, you know, you can only control what's, in, with, what's within your control. I can't control the behavior of others. Um, and so, and I would say that previous businesses have not worked out for a myriad of reasons, uh, some my own uh, doing and, and some the doing of others. Um, but I, you know, again, you can't control what others do. Um, I'll give you like, like, I mean, yeah. And I, th I suppose you reference pay me to a certain extent there. You know, I was, I had, I was on my sabbatical um, and I had went out for drinks one evening and I met uh, a group of guys. And in one of that, in that group was a gentleman um, who was really interested in starting businesses. Just, he was super entrepreneurially minded, but had never started a business before. Um, and he was super interested in the payments industry. He worked in the banking sector. And, um, and you know, as soon as he found out that I had started a few businesses before, he just kind of locked on and was like super keen. Um, you know, to the point where he was inviting me out for lunch, you know, wanted to go, wanted to talk startups. And I, I was probably at the stage where I had kind of started to overcome, you know, the internal challenges that I had. And I, like I said, I had recovered emotionally and spiritually and all the rest of it from, from the previous ventures. I was probably getting that itch again. Um, and I started to explore that you know, inclination and that desire to go, maybe go out and do something again with this, with this guy. And, you know, we spent a lot of time spitballing ideas um, and, and we talked about going into, into payments, which was, you know, building a biometric payment system, which would allow you to uh, pay for things with your fingerprint and not have to, uh, and not have to use a card or anything like that. So pay by touch. And I just thought this was a really neat, neat idea, but more than anything, at that point, I realized that an idea is is worthless. It's all around execution. And for me, this was just an opportunity to try and warm up, uh, flex that entrepreneurial muscle again and try and, you know, see, see how it fits and how it feels. Um, and particularly more so than anything else, this, you know, find other people I was going to work with, try them out, see how our characters fit. How did our personalities fit together? What was their work ethic? Did it match with mine? You know, what was their energy levels like? Were they high one day and low the next, you know, cause what you want from business partners is you want stability. You want, you know, re an even keel and consistency. You don't want ups and downs. You know, that's incredibly hard to manage. You just want some sort of even keel of work and, and energy that comes with it. So these would be things that I would be looking for in the very early parts of, of establishing a business relationship. And I don't sign anything in the beginning. You know, I say, let's just work together. You know, let's, let's research, let's collaborate, let's share knowledge. And we did that for about four months, I'd say, um, where we were just constantly sharing information, getting together, you know, kind of talking about what was happening in the world and, 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 and starting to build the business models out together and, you know, trade, trade and trade, trade insights and ideas. Um, 
ultimately we went to a point where we was like, okay, let's do this. And we, we registered the business and uh, we put the, we put the project up in Upwork. We didn't have any technical co-founder at the time. So we put the project up in Upwork and an Armenian company bid for the work. Um, and they, they won the tender for the pay me uh, prototype. And we paid, I think six and a half grand uh, for this company to build us a prototype for, for pay me. Um, once I had the prototype, I started going out and shopping it to investors and enterprise Ireland. Um, at that point, Apple pay just launched that like within a couple of months of us finishing our MVP, I was like, Oh fuck, this is, this is probably not gonna, not gonna fly. Um, and to be honest, there was just so many barriers to entry once we got into it, that we realized this wasn't going to work. And so, um, we were drowning our sorrows in the, the Gingerman pub. Um, and we had decided that we wanted to do a startup. We were getting on pretty well. We were working well together. And we decided that uh, we would keep going. And, and we started we started kind of hocking around ideas and over beers. Um, someone mentioned uh, that, you know, Devin, do you know that the online grocery market in uh, Ireland, the UK, is worth nine billion pounds, but it loses 300 million pounds a year. And me coming from a commodity markets background working in the energy sector, I just thought that blew me away. Like you had such a large yet dysfunctional market. Um, and that kind of sucked. I went into a, into a six month rabbit hole of, of research in that market. But ultimately what happened was out the end of that, we decided we want to do another business. Um, and so it became about by me, <laughs> the, 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 the pre- predecessor of, uh, of Amy, we weren't very creative with names, obviously. Um, and we took that idea to our, uh, the Armenian company that we were working with. We had gotten to know the CEO of that company, Art, Art of Az, really well. Um, I got on really well with Art, super transparent guy, very honest, you know, uh, as a, an outsourcing software development company, I felt incredibly comfortable with him. But actually, when I pitched him the idea and asked him how much it would cost to build a prototype, Art said to me, look, man, I really love this idea. You know, if you'd be interested in having me, I'd, I'd love to come in as a, as a co-founder and we'll, we'll build this business together. Um, and I bit his hand off. You know, I'd spent six months working with the guy. I knew him. We got on well. I felt he was a trust, trustworthy guy and we decided to do it. Um, the other aspect of starting a business is how do you split value? Um, my rule of thumb is that everyone gets an equal slice at the beginning. Um, you split it evenly because it doesn't matter how much more experience you have, unless you're putting money in. If it's just sweat equity, you split the business even. If I, if me start a business ring and I put a hundred grand in, then we'll have a conversation. Um, but if we're splitting this, if we're starting this business, easy, neither of us are putting money in, we're just going to do sweat equity and then raise capital. It's even, even, um, uh, because the difference, the difference is that what I would put in place is a shareholder agreement with vesting schedules which means if either one of us leave this business within a year, we walk away with nothing. If either one of us leave this business within certain periods of time, we, we get a diminished return on our, on our, on our sweat equity. And that's how you keep people honest. And that's how you, you need to put rules of engagement in place. Um, and they would be the things that I learned from previous businesses I didn't have in place. I've, I've had you know, co-founders that, that ultimately walked away holding equity in the business and they wouldn't give up that equity in the business. Ultimately, the business has failed because... If there's a if there's a, an uneven distribution of, of ownership across people who are not involved in the business, the business is bound to fail. Yeah, that real job was that Salesforce? No, no, Salesforce was a means to an end. Um, I was working in a, an energy an energy trading company called Veyu, an uh, independently owned trading company. We worked with we traded gas and electricity contracts on the UK market for large UK sorry large uh, pharmaceutical and retail manufacturers. Um, when I decided that I wanted to do buy me and I knew it was going to be a technology platform company, um, I didn't ha- I knew one problem I had is that investors were not going to take me seriously as a tech CEO and co-founder with no background in technology and no understanding of platform uh, technology. So I uh, left my job in energy. I got a job in Salesforce and spent a year in Salesforce doing what I called a, a master's in platform tech. 
um, and that was uh, that was part of my pivot and part of my my setup of Buy Me. I've got a degree in tourism marketing, and I don't use it. I know you have a degree in finance. How useful has it been? Very, very, <laughs> very okay. useful. Yeah, I would say I would say very useful. Now I'm like I'm not an accountant. Like I'm not like that's not that's not what I do. Um, when I say finance has been useful for me, is that I I understand value and I understand economics. Um, you know, they were, they were like, economics was probably one of my best subjects in, in university, but it's understanding the way the world works and understanding the way businesses work and what are the real kind of fundamentals of businesses. Um, and my time work, my time studying finance gave me, gave me a lot of foundation that I could build on. You just chatting to you and my, my mind's going a million different places here, which you can probably read for me, but you, you, You'd be, I don't think that's the wrong way, but you'd be a great man to have a point with. You, you <laughs> seem like you have a lot of stories. Um, and with stories uh, and telling stories, a lot of people would know you. What's something that people might misunderstand about Devon? Where did you get that question? I asked that question. It just come from I, asked, a... I asked that question in every interview. Oh, you asked that question in I every asked, interview? I asked that question in every interview. The way I frame it, is I say, if I went to, to your existing employer and spoke to your friend, your friends, your colleagues, your reports and your debt and your managers, and I asked them, you know, to describe Rian to me, what would be the number one thing that they would get wrong? That's the, well, way, that's the way I frame that question. So I'm just interested that you asked that question. Very good. Yeah, no, uh, I, I've, I've attended a couple of uh, keynote talks of, as part of the company I'm with, Sandler, and, uh, and I fly to Orlando a couple of times a year, and it's a question that I got to call Mike asks most people. So I take down these questions. Similar to starting this, I went to your LinkedIn recommendations and took one and read one. I saw someone else do that. I just take ideas and, Likewise. and repeat them. Likewise. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, ideas are worthless. It's all about how you execute. Um, so what would be something that people misunderstand about me? Um, that would depend on the stakeholder, but let's say people who work with me, which would be the people who spend the vast majority of their time with me. I mean, you can, whatever you can read about the press and you're going to read on Twitter, you know, there's all sorts you could say, but if we talk about who really matters, it's the people around me, um, that I would, I would think about mostly. Um, and I've often thought about how would I answer my own question if I was sitting on the other side of an interview. Um, I think one of the things that can be often misunderstood about me is that I do not care um about the feelings of others um and what i mean by that is at times um i can convey information without uh without managing the way in which it's been heard um, so i might get to a point where i'm just trying to get information from me to you um, and i'm trying to do it in the clearest way possible and it has no frills and there's no soft edges to it um, and depending on the environment and depending on the stresses that someone else might be experiencing, that can be quite harsh. Um, and it may feel as if, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't care how it makes them feel. Um, the reality is that I'm quite thoughtful about the people around me and um, I want to make sure that they feel comfortable and they're happy. Um, but at times I, I, I don't quite get it, the message across uh, in how I mean to. So I think that's probably one of my biggest areas that I've come to understand that people can misunderstand about me. Have you done a personality test? Um, I've done, I've done small ones. Um, like the, the one, the free ones online, I haven't done a professional one, which I, I'm, I'm quite interested in potentially doing. Um, but what I have done is I've spent the last 24 months in, in therapy and um, learning a lot about myself. Um, and I would consider that possibly more valuable than a personality test.
Interesting because I've done a personality test about 24 months ago and I've only just started to get into therapy. So it's kind of roll switch reverse there. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, do you read books or listen to podcasts? And if so, which ones are you reading and listening to? I do a bit of both. Um, I, I, I consume information, um, ideally visual. So I would, I would consume a lot of my educational stuff through YouTube. Um, because actually I enjoy seeing uh, the visuals of people. Um, I, I do listen to podcasts. In fact, when I was doing Buy Me, I would have listened to a lot of podcasts while I was doing orders. Um, and because I'd be obviously very busy, I would be able to look at the screen. Um, I do, I read books, a couple here sitting in front of me at the moment. Um, I read them in blocks. I don't sit down and like get absorbed into a book and read it in, in a day. Um, I'll typically, you know, get hop in and out of, of various different books, depending on what what's happening in my life at any given time. Um, but the vast majority of my content will be consumed uh, visual and audio. Okay, two more. I, I two more questions. I'm a big fan of YouTube as well. I so much so that I have YouTube Premium because the ads annoyed me so much. And like this close to clicking, yes. I was so close to clicking it for months. Got a free month trial, and I just extended it. You'd be amazed of how. Uh, different life becomes when you don't have yeah. to watch the ads. You, you get excited that you don't have to waste five seconds. Especially anyway. now, because what happens is I'll be I'll be feeding the little man at night. I put him down to bed every evening, and I'll have you know YouTube just on the on my phone on the on the shelf, and all of a sudden an ad pops up, but I have no free hand. I have to watch all <sighs> the ad raging. So yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. This won't take long, but uh, my father has a Harley Davidson, and he's originally from Kilkenny. And he said, do you want to sit in the back? This was years ago. Do you want to sit in the back and come down to Kilkenny with me to visit my mother? And I said, yeah, sure. And he has a helmet, but in the helmet, there's headphones. So you can listen to stuff while you're on the bike. And I, you can sync it up by a Bluetooth to your phone, sync it up to my phone. I had done the leaving cert maybe two years prior and hadn't taken off like where they read out the entire paper to you. So five minutes into the ride, I experienced two and a half hours of English paper one. The entire way down. Oh, gee, that's great. I couldn't skip it at all. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so two, uh, we two more questions because we're coming near the end here. Um, I'm curious. Do you invest in yourself, and are you a believer in it? Yeah, I definitely invest in myself. Um, I'm a massive believer in it. I think therapy is a perfect example of that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I for the last two years. I've done therapy every week, an hour every Friday. That's not that's not cheap. Um, you know that that is that's a that's very very real investment in yourself. There's no tangible output, and um, there's no KPIs that you can measure the return on investment. Um, you know, so yeah. it's and that that's one of the hardest things with with I think investing in yourself. There's, there is no clear tangible result. And the other side of it is that you can invest in yourself and then not perform. Um, I'll give you an example. I've bought a couple of different courses. I want to, I want to upskill in a couple of technical areas and I, you know, I've, I've gotten through maybe three or four chapters of those, those courses and I haven't, haven't finished them. Um, you know, that's an investment myself that I haven't really been optimizing. Um, so yeah, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in investing in yourself and in a multitude of ways. Um, you know, your downtime is, is very important. Like last year I closed a large round of funding for the business. Um, and you know, as a kind of reward for myself, I went out and bought a whole mess of fishing gear. Um, nice. you know, I think that was a 560 euros. Not, we're not talking a huge amount of money, but for me, that was a five, I'm not a big spender. I don't really spend, buy things. You know, that's not kind of, I'm not just, I, like I have two, uh, one pair of runners, which I've had for 10 years. 
I have you know one pair of shoes and I have two pairs of jeans. That's it, really, you know, and then a couple of jumping shirts. So for me, buying things are is, is not really usual, but you know, taking that time to say I'm gonna buy this because I'm gonna invest in peace, you know, for myself. I can go fishing. It's something that relaxes me. You know, that that I think is a, is another form of investing in yourself. So I, I'm a firm believer in it and I highly encourage it. I think a lot of people feel quite bad investing in themselves. Yeah, I, I, I've certainly found that not only from a uh, individual like taking care of yourself, but from a work point of view. I know you've worked at Salesforce. People have education allowances. There was a stat that came out, wasn't Salesforce, but it was one company where 72% of the company didn't tap into their education allowance for over three years. Doesn't surprise my mind. I'll give you another one. Pensions. Vast majority of people don't, don't even think about or consider pensions. That is the really? pure, that is the purest form of investing in yourself. The, the average age of someone getting a pension is 36. And the wow. reason, reason why is that actually until you get to a, a certain uh, earning level, pension the pension industry doesn't give a flying fuck about you. Um, that's because the pension advisors are not incentivized to go after low earners. Um, the, the, and, and the unfortunate, unfortunate part of this is that if you started investing in a pension at 25, you would be disproportionately better off, disproportionately better off than vast majority of people come retirement age um, then uh, because you started earlier, and that's purely a purely a function of compound interest. Um, and for me, pensions have have always, and I've had the very you know I've been very fortunate that you know a, a close family member, my uncle is is a senior pension advisor for a very large firm, and he's drilled it into me over the years about how important a pension is. Um, and that for me is is, is one of the one of the, the biggest missed opportunities for people because the tax incentive alone for a pension means you can crystallize a forty percent return on investment. The minute you invest in your pension so for every euro you put into your pension you get 40 40 cent tax relief um, and most people don't realize that so what people do is they take their salary out um, on a monthly basis and they get hit with their with their income tax and then they go and invest it in things like cryptocurrency or 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 stocks on their fucking revolute app um, when in actual fact they've already lost 40 percent they've already lost 40 percent the minute that the minute they let it hit their bank account uh, and get done for income tax they've already lost the 40 percent tax relief so they actually have to get 40% and then they're, then they're at neutral and then they have to grow from there. Whereas if you actively build out your pension and your portfolio there, um, while still investing in other things, that's, that's besides the point. Um, you have a you know, far better chance at you know, being, a, being a millionaire when you retire, um, even if you're doing a fairly regular job. You put a smile on my face because I started in putting money into my pension at 25, two and a half. You are an outlier, my ago. friend. You were and an I thought I was late to the game, really late to the game. You are an now, outlier. That's, uh, that's certainly made me smile. Um, one of the things I like to end on is I'm a big believer in not-for-profits giving back. Um, I, from a lot of people I see, there's different stages. And when they get to the like 40, 50 or 55, they kind of want to give back. But a couple of guests I've had on, Pierce Dargan, the first guest, he uh, co-founded Dublin Street Tours. One thing I've noticed that you have is called Sharing Economy Ireland. So to end out or see us out of this podcast, why don't you tell me a little bit about what is Sharing Economy Ireland? Yeah, so Sharing Economy Ireland, unfortunately, is no more. Um, so, oh. and, and, and it's also, it's also, it is not for profit, but it's slightly different. It's I started Shared Economy Ireland because what I recognized was that the, the knowledge gap between um, government policy legislators uh, and what was happening in the private markets due to technology was, uh, was quite significant. 
um, there was a lot of disruption occurring across multiple sectors, primarily been driven by platform technology. Um, and, and one of the bigger, noisier areas is the area of gig economy, um, which was, you know, is, is essentially a global megatrend of, uh, of decentralization of um, labor activity. And it was, a, you know, a lot of these platform technologies changing the way people access labor markets. And so actually the, the, the mission behind Sharing Economy Ireland was to, to create a trade organization association of all of the biggest platform companies in the country, uh, both indigenous and international, and actually start to engage with government uh, to educate across the various different sectors that were experiencing disruption, be it accommodation, be it transport, be it, uh, be it labor in general. Um, and so that was, that was actually the mission behind, behind Sharing Economy Ireland. Unfortunately, at the time, you know, I was, I was also doing grocery deliveries. Um, you know, we were a very small business and I, we were trying to achieve an awful lot, but not a lot. Um, and also, you know, I realized that there was a huge, huge, very difficult to engage government, particularly across multiple verticals. Um, and I was just, yeah, I was, t I was probably biting off a little bit more than I could chew. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately that didn't go anywhere, but actually what Sharing Economy Ireland did give me was, you know, this reach and exposure uh, across not just the government uh, and, and legislative markets and learning more about how, how our government, how policy is generated, but also working within academia. I built a great relationship with, uh, with Trinity College, in particular, one of their professors, Laurent Muzlac, um, and I became a, a somewhat of a, a guest lecturer in, in business colleges and business schools across Europe, uh, lecturing on platform technology and, and, and the impact it was having on, on you know, the economics of our, of our markets and, 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 and countries. So, you know, it, it led me on a, on a whole other journey uh, and I got exposure to things that I never would have been exposed to had I, had I not gone on that journey. Um, but in terms of not-for-profits, I think, you know, it's funny you should say that because right now I'm kind of currently thinking about you know, now that our business has grown to the size that it is, we're the largest same-day grocery commerce platform in the country. Um, we're quite a large stakeholder in the industry within FMCG. You know, a big focus for us is about driving sustainability. And so we've, we've now finally got to a position where we've been able to adopt a formal company mission. Whereas, you know, up until 18 months ago, our, our mission was survive. <laughs> and we didn't really have the luxury of doing anything else. Um, but now we've, we've really started to focus on food sustainability and, and, uh, and supply chain. Uh, particularly when it comes to last mile. Um, and so looking for ways in which we can help reduce the impact of grocery on the world that we live in um, is a big area of focus. Things like you know, fossil fuel, CO2 emissions, land usage, uh, single-use plastic bags, um, a variety of things that we're, we're quite committed to as a business um, with the view of you know, more stakeholder capitalism and, and triple bottom line type approaches. Um, last year, we, we raised 8.2 million in funding um, and a big chunk of that investment was led by uh, Wheat Chief, which is the largest food sustainability uh, and impact fund, one of the biggest in, in the UK, and actually belongs to the Duke of Westminster's family estate, the Grosvenor estate. Um, and there, and you know, having those types of stakeholders allow us to, to have a, a, foc a focus that's you know not just driven by profit and actually driven by you know the impact on the world that we're living in. Amazing, amazing. If people want to find out more about by me, I'm assuming they can go onto the website. Absolutely, yeah. Free delivery on your first order, no excuse. How does it work? Do you mind me asking? If I'm I'm out in Rotorua, I go on. There's a Tesco in Ashburn. I find, I pick a time of type the groceries I want in, and someone will deliver it to me. Correct. Yeah. So you go on the app, you download it, put in your address. We'll show you what retailers uh, we have in your location, be it Dunn's, Tesco, or Little. Um, you'll be able to then choose a retailer, and then from that point on, you can view all of their categories. We have you know probably somewhere in the region of thirty-five thousand products wow. available for order. Uh, we have the largest grocery product database in the country. Um, across you know three of the re largest retailers, fifty five percent market share. Um, you then choose the items that you want, whatever they may be. No no maximum baskets. It can be as big a basket as you want. 
and you then place your order and uh, that will then be fed into our system and we will then match it to the very best personal shopper in your local area. That person will go to store, they'll pick, pack and prepare the order on behalf of you. If there's anything out of stock, they'll ring you from store to discuss, you know, sorry, Rain, they've no fillet steak, can I get you a T-bone instead? Um, you get an opportunity to edit and, and, and change your basket in real time. Uh, so there's no door shock when the basket arrives. And then the shopper will pay for the items like a normal customer would using a buy me debit card, which we, which we preload, we put cash on that card uh, when they accept the order after you've placed it. And then they will deliver the order to, directly to your house. I read that your demographic was predominantly 25 to 35 year old in favor of, what was it, females? I was shocked. I thought it would have been 55 plus. Well, so, were you as shocked? Two primary demographics, not really, um, because you know we're, we're app first. We've no website today. So there's a degree of tech savviness that comes with, with using our service today. We will have a website in the not too distant future. Um, but we realized that you know roughly 77% of all e-commerce transactions happen through a mobile phone. And so we decided to go native app first uh, because we only had so much resource. We had to decide where we were gonna put it. We wanted to have a really great app rather than having a so-so app and a really crap website. You know, we wanted to really specialize and make sure our resources uh, were dedicated. Um, so our, our demographic today is, uh, it's, it's split. It's 25 to 35, 35 to 45. And it's about 60% to the younger demographic. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're talking young professionals and young families. You know, they're they're kind of the, the the real sweet spot for us, and probably ideally exactly where I am, which is that transition from young professional to family, because your your whole lifestyle change there and your time becomes very different. So um, I think that's a real interesting use case for you know I've had a lot of friends recently, all of the same age as me, who I went to school with, all having kids. The amount of messages I've gotten from people who all of a sudden have tried by me uh, for the first time because they just don't have as much time. Yeah. Uh, and they just rave about it, you know, and um, but it's so so it's it's been such an impact for them, which is great. Um, but yeah, so I mean, in, in that instance, we have those two key demographics, and then yes, we skew a little bit heavier towards female, um, across both 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 age brackets. Amazing. Well, look from one we me man to another me man. I wish you the best of luck Likewise. for whatever you do in the future. If it's by me for the next decade or two, whatever. Best of luck. Yeah. Listen. Thanks so much, and look, really enjoy the podcast. Great work.